I'm Nick Rockle, Editor-in-Chief of BC Business Magazine. Welcome to the BC Business Podcast. Thanks for joining me. I recently chatted with Jonas Altman, Vancouver-based author of the new book, Shapers, about how we can reinvent the way we work. In, in your new book, you, you argue that we're at a watershed moment, uh, given massive uh, disengagement uh, by employees and a system of work that, that's broken. Can, can you elaborate on that to start? Sure. So this was written pre-COVID, which yeah. will probably come up in our conversation. And Gallup has been doing a study for the last 12 years, and you got to take polls with a grain of salt. Yeah. The, the, the news, the headline, the majority of the professional working world is not connected to their work and is not engaged in what they do. Somewhere between anywhere from 87%, sometimes into the sort of... Uh, 50, 60%, and a portion of those people right now, 13%, are actively disengaged, meaning they would do anything they can to sabotage their company, light it on fire, send anthrax in the post, were it not for them losing their job. So that kind of, that triggered me, I guess, as a, or it pushed my button because I worked in the, uh, I've worked in nonprofits, but for quite a while in universities, and I could see that it was visible. Disenchantment, dissatisfaction, your sort of spirit is sapped by the end of the day. Yeah. And, and Studs Turkwell, Turkel, the, the broadcaster said, people are sort of suffering a Monday through Friday sort of dying. So if that, if that is true, and the majority of the working world is disengaged in their work, why is that? Mm-hmm. And one of the answers, one answer is that Adam Smith's theory that people will work for a carrot and stick and are lazy and stupid is false. And the system of work was created in the myth of which reinforced the myth, which then became true. And I'm talking to you on Zoom and we've got our phones and I've got my techniques turntables, probably as a result of a lot of this. So I, I don't want to say it didn't have its benefits. But somewhere we lost the human spirit and the ability to feel connected to work, which is probably more important today than ever because the religious industrial complex has collapsed and people are looking for value and meaning in their work, which was not typical. So that's where that comes from. And the system of work needs an update or um, an upgrade for the age that we live in now, the innovation economy, and for a lot of people who are making a living not in the factories, but in the um, internet. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, the book is called Shapers, Reinvent the Way You Work and Change the Future. What, what is a shaper? <sighs> so it's one of those things that can be democratized like design. Anyone can be a shaper. The typical word is used or co-opted from surfboard shaping. Um, And so there's a craftsmanship element. So uh, the protagonist who starts off the book, Manny, was trying to figure out what he would do for his life. He tried film, he tried anthropology, he worked in retail. He ended up bumping into the fact that he could marry both his passion as well as his skills and make a living. And there's a whole conundrum around should we follow our passion and purpose and, and turn that into a living or should we follow in follow our uh, a natural 
uh, abilities and maybe that will become our purpose back to musicians and so forth. So that's, that's a caveat. So what happens at that moment when he doubled downs on being a surfboard shaper is I think the first thing is to see work as a journey and no longer a job you have. Like you don't possess the means of production or labor. You are in many ways seeing the, the, the journey of work with a bunch of way stations, which is your career. So once you see work as a practice, now you're entering in shaperhood or shaperdom. And then because of that, there's a couple of things that become immediate qualities. The first is you start to get energized instead of feeling depleted by what you do. So you come away from the day uh, more alive. Mm -hmm. The second is you find opportunities regularly to express yourself. So you don't have to stuff your emotions or leave your, yourself at home. Metaphorically, you can bring most of yourself or all of yourself to work. And then finally, the sense of a shaper shimmer or a feeling of doing something bigger than yourself allows you to feel like you're making an impact in the world. Yeah. And when you get that kind of mm, sensation from what it is you spend most of your working life doing, then I would label you a shaper. Okay, thanks. So I basically co-opted it from a surfboard shaper saying anyone could be a surfboard shaper, but you don't have to make surfboards. Yeah, yeah, I see, yeah. And, and a shaper is very different from a hustler, right? Yes. Yeah. A, a hustler, like a Gary Vanderchuk hustler that many people idealize. I, I do a course at UBC and like half the class want to be Elon Musk um, or Bill, uh, not necessarily Bill Gates, but they want to be Elon Musk. Um, and they're, they're using hus hustling as a uh, bragging right. Like, you know, I'm in it, I don't sleep, I sleep at the office, I, I drink Soylent. Versus, and so that's almost like workaholism where you could actually burn out or work yourself uh, to death. Whereas when you look at people who are shapers or, or are lit up by their work, they're more, they're more like what they've called engaged workaholics who understand that there's a limit to our cognitive abilities, that the hustle is only useful if you're uh, deliberate and intentional and that you need to uh, stop and you need to spend time with family and friends and with yourself and rest and, and replenish. So hustle gets replaced with doing the work that matters most in, an, in a way that is evolved or awakened. Yeah, and, and you're a shaper yourself. Well, I wasn't, yeah. I, I, was, a, I was an idiot for most of my first <laughs> career. Uh, I worked in the music industry. Um, I set up, I set up a, a fashion business in England. I worked myself as a hustler to the ground. And at uh, 33, 34, I, I, I would call it burnout, which is like mental and physical exhaustion that you can no longer ignore. Yeah. And you're kind of like, okay, this is not a sustainable, like this is, this is not how we're built, you know? And so that's when I went and I, I kind of searched for a different way to, 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 to do work that was more balanced. And, and on, in that journey, I bumped into Manny who makes surfboards. I started to be more inquisitive about people who, when you speak to them, it wasn't like, I am this. It was more like, I do these things. Yeah, yeah I see. So, so to pick up on your earlier point, you, you say that work is a practice through which we search for meaning to help shape a colorful life. How realistic is that sort of ambition for, for the average person, the average working stiff and 
great question. Today, it's not very realistic. Hmm. You've got 300 million people potentially unemployed. You've got one in four Americans or more uh, on benefits. Um, you've got a sense of uncertainty that's more acute because everything has always been uncertain. So I've tried to address a lot of that in chapter 18. Uh, after Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like food, clothing, uh, and shelter, and possibly add education and healthcare, when there's no anxiety around that, when you're not one paycheck away, then you could start to contemplate some of these things in the book. Uh, and I've tried to be open about that, but it, perhaps I got a little bit excited. And so there are some parts where I, I realize I'm speaking mostly to knowledge workers in the Western world or advanced economies. And now that COVID has happened or there is an opportunity, people who were ignoring this voice of like, maybe there's something else or I'll just do the investment banking for two more years and then I'll set up the Airbnb in Tofino or whatever their story was. Yeah. I think that this is an invitation. So it's not that realistic for the average stiff. It's realistic for the people who have had the liberty or luxury to be able to contemplate this before a pandemic. And now there's potentially a sense of urgency to do something about it. Mm -hmm. in, in the book, uh, Patty McCord, who's the former chief talent officer at Netflix says, good talent managers think like business people and innovators first and HR people last. If conventional HR is broken, what, what are some qualities of a, a progressive talent manager? That's an awesome question. There's actually some uh, dirt on that. Patty McCord actually got fired. Um, and oh. She wrote a lot about that um, after 12 years because she created a culture that whatever you want to say about Netflix could thrive based on the idiosyncrasies and the pulse of humans. And she was no longer needed. Like her job was done. And actually it was an amicable, amicable split. But her mentality, and she's probably one of those pioneers, humans are not resources to be managed. They are assets to be set free. They are assets to look at as, how do I serve you to do your best work? And HR is a marketing function. It is, in effect, selling the culture of the company to say, you will add value by joining this culture as opposed to having to conform to it. And that's potentially a little idealistic. But those questions that HR managers could ask is, what is the most effective way to harness the talent given people, the smartest people in the world will want to work from anywhere? What is a type of psychological contract, whether it's full-time, part-time, freelancer, et cetera, and stop, stop being so concerned with HR policy and much more with uh, human dignity? And other more humane type questions that look at it as not resources like fossil fuels or coal, but human beings. I was going to swear there, but I'll, I'll keep my quotes too. And so I think that those are the things. And I wrote a couple of questions that HR managers could, HR managers could ask. And now they've been rebranded like at Lululemon, they're called head of people and culture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a, a, hopefully a mindset shift, but I don't actually know hand on heart what goes on at Lululemon in terms of that being lived. But my feeling is that the people I've spoken to, like at Lego, they are really trying to practice what they preach. It's a step in the right direction anyway. It's a step, yes, exactly. And can you talk about the importance of control, context, and collaboration in helping workers 
be what you describe as their, their best selves. You mean control, like the, the model of, of, of managing and commanding control, like a hierarchical versus. It's, it's something that comes up in the book. You had these, you made these three, uh, these three points. I don't have the details in front of me, but um, you, you had highlighted mm. those as being. Yes. Important thing. Um, control is really actually more about autonomy. So once you don't, okay, there's a, a cartoon I could send you after, which is actually a picture in the book, which is like Tetris. Once, once you don't have control over your work, you have to conform to systems, protocols, and policies. When you do have autonomy, you can get the job done in the right way. Uh, sorry, you can get the right, you can do the job in the way that suits you and get the output, not necessarily in the prescribed way. Uh, for example, like um, at universities, a good example would be the 17 ways to get uh, a claim for your expenses. It's almost not worth doing. So yeah. you just say, well, you know what? I charged it to the credit card and it went to the company. You, know, you just find a way to circumvent it, not necessarily according to policy, but the same outcome. So yeah, you pack of some kind. Yeah. So that's all about that's all about control of your environment, the where you work, how you work, when you work, which is, again, an ideal, but moving in that direction. Uh, context is what works in um, Vancouver, won't work in Vienna. It, it, we, we, you, can't, you, you have to be cu uh, culturally relevant to the uh, French 41-hour work week versus the American 50-hour work week. Yeah. So that's about context, really about like global uh, norms. And collaboration, I think, I, I, if I reflect on that, you know, there's a great saying, no collaboration is better than bad collaboration. And you see in Hollywood, all sorts of cock-ups with people getting too excited or too much ego. So the way that collaboration happens in organizations is, 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 is often uh, not necessarily looking at competitors as peers or uh, uh, customers as, as um, resources. And so collaboration being sort of democratized in many ways allows for really wonderful things to happen. And, and Procter and Gamble, they have PG connect Netflix has their Netflix prize. They really opened up the innovation process and the collaboration process yeah. to anyone. And they thrived over the last 20 years at Lego as well, because they were like, we really our R and D departments are some of the smartest people in the world but they also suffer from proximity and biases. And we need people who are from a totally different uh, discipline to be able to see what we can't see. So that's where that sort of um, modern day collaboration can come in. Yeah, thank you. And, and why should we be pursuing what you call uh, dopeness in, in our work lives? Why, why is that so crucial? Well, that's a philosophical term that's modernized. It's eudaimonia, yeah. right? Right, yeah. Human flourishing. Uh, I mean, my current thinking on that is, so when I talked to you about uh, burning out, I think the impulse was to help and make a difference and make money and all these things without really catering to the self first. Like, what do I need physically, spiritually, emotionally, so that I could uh, be, su be sustainable and make a bigger difference. And a lot of people have different ways. Some people make a lot of money and become philanthropists. Some people go and uh, volunteer in Africa for Greenpeace. Everyone has a different way of showing up. And I think pursuing dopeness 
understands that the impulse to make a difference in the world and to flourish is, is really enlightened self-interest. It's starting to understand you as a person so that when you need to go to Whistler and just get two days in the mountains to then show up for your friends, family, and colleagues, you do that yeah. as opposed to having resentment and being a bit irritable during the week and almost blaming. And so Mark, Marcus Collins, who's the protagonist of that chapter, is someone I met and he's like a, he's religious. So he's active in the church. He's pursuing his PhD in marketing. He works in an advertising firm. He's a Ted speaker. Uh, he's a good friend. You know, like, I was just like, you really show up as like, take, you got your shit together. And he uses the word dopeness all the time. So when I interviewed him, I was like, okay, like that's, but I'll just, again, co-opt dopeness to make eudaimonia more accessible. Yeah, yeah. That, that's where it comes from. Thanks, and, and can you say something about the, the importance of, uh, of fluid teamwork? That's, you, know, you, you have some space in the book uh, about that topic. Yeah, I'm, funnily enough, I wanna write some more about that. Uh, people get caught up with the sense of belonging and the permanence of a team. Yeah. Uh, so just like a soccer team or a football team or at Hollywood or, or Hollywood being an example, like you, you have affinity for your, your crew, but then the company is dissolved and you go on to the next flick. But in organizations, sometimes teams form and stay for too long. Sometimes they don't disband and, and reform. And, and sometimes they form when they should never have formed a committee. Or, so fluid teaming is thinking more about, results and outcomes and how to team which is a amy edmondson term of teaming as a verb effectively clarity on purpose uh, great communication if not over communication psychological safety and trust and a bunch of things that now are known um, her book is uh, the fearless organization that really are like scientifically kind of shown or like kind of data driven things that like this is how great teamwork happens but companies cultures or the way they sail their ship aren't necessarily catering to that and nothing against it. it's just like someone like at&t or ibm or other organizations that are so bureaucratic have very hard times of being fluid yeah because that's intention structure and stability are intention with adaptability and something else I noticed, uh, you, you talk about self-management and what is that? Is it, does it come back to the idea that companies need to treat their employees like adults and judge them on results and, and innovation? Is that the basic idea? For sure. It's, I mean, it's nuanced because you had like a movement when Zappos had holacracy and got rid of managers, upwards of 30% of the people said, I'm out, like this is crazy. Um, I want assurance. I want to know that there's someone I'm accountable to. So it's a whole, it's been around. I mean, there's lots of uh, companies and people who've been championing self-management for upwards of 20, if not 25 years. Uh, Ricardo Semler is one of the most famous who at 21 years old came into his dad's office in Brazil and fired all the CEO, all the C-level. Yeah. Because in many ways, what, one of the main benefits of self-management is to distribute authority and power such that the right decisions can be made quicker, regardless of who makes them. So for Amazon, it could be who has the most data, 
who has been the most uh, senior and knows uh, has been around for 20 years and understands uh, books on amazon.com um, or who has the most domain expertise and is the best qualified in terms of say, um, I don't know, like ethnographic research. And when you start to think like that, you get rid of the job title, you get rid of the boss. And so self-management in many ways tries to reduce hierarchy in favor of meritocracy and value-led uh, kind of um, emergent leadership. I, I'm the one who's doing this because people are following me. Yeah, yes, exactly. And, and why is it important for companies to become what you call learning organizations? And, and what are a few steps they, they can take there, just at least to get the ball rolling and yeah. mindset? I mean, the, 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 the quintessential or the darling example is Google X that apparently re rewards failure. And therefore, we have yeah. balloons floating over third world countries bringing internet to the rest of the world because of that culture. I don't think many companies can adopt that because they'll go out of business. If Visa adopted that, when you go to use your card, the next thing you know, someone in some other country would be charging, basically have stolen all your money. So it's an aspiration and a learning organization in many ways reduces the stigma of learning and is only interested if you learn from failure. So what did we learn from launching the Amazon Fire phone is we learned uh, voice recognition, which could become Alexa. And there's a whole story about that when yep. they launched their phone and it failed. So there's companies that have created cultures where it's okay to experiment and test to innovate in a, in a test kitchen without sacrificing morals, without really crazily uh, disrupting revenue and or customer experience. And so a learning organization starts to um, move towards the office as a classroom as opposed to a place where we know what we're doing and everyone's like, yeah, this is how it is. And there's no growth mindset. It's just a fixed kind of, this is how we sail our ship and there's no room to stretch yourself, learn and grow. Yeah. And this is a, a big question, but what, what does the ideal leader of tomorrow look like? What are some, some features of this, this person, this individual? Yeah. Learner, teacher, mobilizer, giver, coach were the five modes I came up with, but I don't think they're exhaustive at all. I think it's different hats that people wear yeah. at different times and sometimes a blend. Coaching as leader sounds a bit dreamy, but a good example would be, why did you do that? Or just sending a carbon copy of something to scold someone with uh, implicit behavior versus Nick, tell me your thinking on that one. And then it gives you an opportunity, an invitation to express, well, I knew we only had an hour to talk to the client. And so I decided to send the email off and then deal with it as opposed to wait till after the meeting and then then say, why didn't you send us that email before? And then I can go, aha, good one. Next time, let's try to do this. And we're now a team. Much, much more constructive approach. Much more constructive. And I, I you, there are leaders like that and they're rare. 
then those reader, those leaders are are in many ways well, exuding feminine qualities. Yeah, I think you point out somewhere that that most managers are not very good at managing. That's yeah, a serious problem. Yeah, the the bad bosses. Yeah, yeah and so that's where self management comes in, which is like get rid of managers, uh, skill them up to become great leaders, and acknowledge that these qualities. I mean, they have it in the tech world. There's a lot of people who are individual contributors who are amazing coders and designers, but shitty leaders, and they found themselves in a leadership. There are other people who um, grow into it. And, and um, I use a woman there uh, who runs Next Jump, uh, Marissa, right. uh, and, and Messenger. And, um, you know, she, she really, I think, looked at herself of how do I develop as a human to grow other leaders in the company. And then that's when they, after the dot-com dot, uh, dot boom and bust, re-imagine re their business as everyone can be a leader. And these are the qualities that we believe are essential for our organization to be champion. Thanks. And how, is, how has COVID changed or influenced your ideas about working and, and the future of work? Should we do the bad first and then the, and then the sure. good? Sure, yeah. So a CFO who was spending, I don't know, a few million in rent at WeWork in Vancouver, or even you can look at say Amazon who was doing that, goes potentially our productivity went up and we were saving pretty much 25% of our revenue in having a physical office if we just get rid of it. Yeah. And then there's a, a caveat or a footnote at what cost to our emotional well-being, our mental health, um, the long-term strategy of not having a place to congregate. So I think there's going to be misuse or abuse of remote work. And that will become uh, visible or pronounced with increased mental, mental health problems and perceived lack of trust or real lack of trust, which becomes artificial harmony where there's not really a culture of trust. And now basically it's people trying to be visible, but not being in the same proximity as the office. So over compensating with Slack and email and not being able to basically have a healthy boundary between work and life. So that's people struggling or quietly suffering. On the positive side, it's accelerated what I had thought would take years and would be incremental change, which is how people like to change, sort of invisible, like, oh, my app uh, icon changed for Uber, you know? Yeah. Like if it changed colors and it changed this whole thing, it's like, what did you do? It's too fast. So I'm worried we're gonna get whiplash. And, and so the, the change happened fast. It was a Band-Aid got ripped off, deal with it. And so that allows or is an opportunity for people to really step up, uh, leaders to step up, people who are dissatisfied, who have that opportunity now, as we spoke about, to turn a corner or finally, you know, speak their truth to whether it's their partner or there's a great uh, quote by Esther Perel that the cracks have become very pronounced in, in couples and humans and then the light shining through. And it's sort of our opportunity now to, to decide what, what we want to do. Do we want to reset, uh, look at a new form of capitalism, look at new ways to structure work, 
new ways to structure the fact that you can only really get about four or five hours of cognitive deep work a day. And, yeah. then, and then we don't have to be commuting to an office. Uh, four day work weeks, which are already being piloted. So I think there's a huge amount of great things. I'm, I'm concerned about like implementation. Yes. So, so, so where does it leave the office? Do we even need that place anymore? That the thing that we call the office? I think, yeah, I, the, the, the sort of clickbait would be traditional offices are dead. The new office is a state of mind, like anywhere you want it to be. Kitchen table, Prado coffee shop, uh, co-working space, physical office, like that has your, uh, you know, um, company name at the receptionist, airplane, wherever you need to be to do great work. If you work for a company that has a network, like IE, you can log in and do your work. Uh, for all the people who work in service industry, retail, factories, uh, uh, many people who are exploited in work, it's unfortunately you get very bad for these, for these people. And I mean that in a way of uh, the access to opportunity and inequality is gonna get so wide. You can already see billionaires are getting wealthier and people who are in a fortunate position to be able to work with, their, with Zoom are just sort of leaving an entire sort of industry that can't really retrain overnight. And as Montreal closes down and, and baristas or bartenders have to go get some other work, they can't just become a teacher online or a, yeah, a writer. Of so, yeah. so we've got, you know, we've got a whole thing with like, what are we doing as a, as a social safety net? What are we doing to create quality work that's not exploitative? And, and so, um, I, I, I actually don't have the answer to that. I, 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 I'm stumped. No one knows. Yes. Yeah. And then one, one more thing. Um, what, what are a few things that, that managers and employees can do to prepare themselves for, for what's coming or for, for tomorrow to be, to be thoughtful about it or mindful about it? Did you say managers and employees? Yeah. So yeah. one or the other or both. Yeah. I mean, funnily enough, the, the word you're going to see uh, in the last three months, six months, is uncertainty, unpredictability, resilience, change. I mean, this is just like any article, you know, navigating change, like come do our UBC course. Like, yeah. what is it like to embody uh, an assurance or a stoic approach that we don't know what we're doing? but we're going to figure it out. So I think it's a, it's a definitely a, uh, an admission of uh, uh, being okay with the unknown and getting comfortable with ambiguity, which is easier said than done. Looking at the we versus the me. So it's no longer this, the Jonah show or the Nick show. It's the BC business show. And it probably should have always been. And an admission that, you know, being selectively vulnerable and understanding when to, let people into your uh, thinking as a human is important. And when it's right to be assured, uh, to be confident and uh, assure people with a style of leadership that, that alleviates their anxiety, even if you feel it inside. And that's really emotional intelligence. And how to build emotional resilience and emotional intelligence uh, is a whole new 
sort of field or it, it has always been. And most of the time it's been through therapy, coaching, and um, basically practice. Yeah. Um, but I think there are ways to look at it as a skill that you can build or a muscle that you can build through basically like going to the gym. So uh, here's an example. Um, it's called the bounty. I wrote about it in the book. So General Electric would say, we're having our monthly quarter, our quarterly meet. I want everyone on the team to go out and find an inefficiency or a problem in the organization and bring it to me. But when you do, make sure you have at least one solution. Go. Yeah. And like that kind of back to empowering or enabling workers is like, that's what managers can do. That's what employees can ask for. And although that might sound dreamy, I mean, how efficient is that to get rid of uh, a meeting that happens once a month for 20 people that you could put a cost to as costing $600,000. The meeting is gone and nothing, no one, nothing mattered because everything got done because they never tried it. Yeah. And then that 600,000 gets deployed in skilling up uh, workers for the new world of work, whatever that looks like for that company. <music>